So I said this morning that I felt it was uh, just a, an appropriate time to come back to your studies in Elijah with Stephen preaching this morning. Uh, and yet there was this small section really between the account of Obadiah and then Mount Carmel that begins there uh, down really verse number 20 and following. So let me set the scene for you again. The portion is a revelation of times of declension and departure from the truth. Remember chapter 16 of this chapter, this book, ends with the account of Baal's rise to office. Yes, over the years, the previous kings, there have been this gradual slipping from the path of truth, but a bad marriage and idolatry advances in the land. Verse number 31 of chapter 16 describes how that it was a light thing for Ahab to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. A light thing for him to walk in the apostasy of the former generations. And thus, in the sovereign purpose of God, God has sovereignly and providentially brought a drought. And there has, when you get to chapter 18, there's been no rain for over three years. Now, it is fascinating in these biblical narratives to see how the Bible plays out these events before us. And it often does so by zoning in on particular people. It's often what you see in the narratives. You have a a big story about uh, the nation, uh, but we see individuals as representing others within the wider body. You see it here. You see Elijah, God's prophet, bold, fearless, obedient to the will of God, no matter what may be human reason. He's determined to do the will of God. We've seen the widow. Again, the Gentile widow is an object of God's grace. It's wonderful to think of that. In physical drought, there's also spiritual drought. And this woman is provided for physically and spiritual by the grace of God. Saved. You say, well, why was she saved? Well, for the preservation of God's servant, Elijah, and for the preservation of God's truth. Then you've got an Obadiah. He's also in this story, he's likely more timid than Elijah, but that makes his stand all the more courageous. Hiding 100 prophets in two bands with bread and water for a season against Jezebel's ire. What's the point of all this? Well, God has different roles for different people to play at all times. But especially in seasons of declension and apostasy. Simply put, be faithful to your God. Where God has placed you. Whatever God has put before you as your duty, be faithful and he will sustain you. Again, we doubt that at times. If I'm faithful to God, I will suffer loss. But we're told in the Psalms, cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. So be faithful and serve the Lord. But what about the man who is the source and cause of all this trouble? What about Ahab? Now, I hinted a few weeks ago a little bit about Ahab, but I thought, well, it's probably beneficial to come back and look at some more details regarding this particular individual. You see, we learn much from Ahab. We learn much about the response of the ungodly in times of affliction. We learn much regarding the hardened heart of the sinner. It's important we understand the human heart. You know, I do, I feel for those in churches that have a, a weak view of human depravity. They must live in confusion. 
Why are so few people believing the gospel? Why is it that when things happen, they don't come and run to Christ Jesus? You see, only a deep-seated understanding of human depravity explains the world in which we live. And Ahab illustrates that, and it's good for us to understand this. It will help us to pray, and it will help us understand the days in which we live. And so the first thing you note regarding Ahab is that his heart is unaffected. We're going to see that God holds the heart of the hardened. And so begin with, you're seeing, well, his heart is unaffected by the chastening hand of God. Ahab is a study in the tragedy of the ungodly ignoring the hand of God. We are in no doubt, aren't we, as to why this drought has occurred. It is God who has withheld the rain, and only God will bring the rain back. Psalm 10 reminds us, the wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts, and God is not in all Ahab's thoughts. God has brought this drought about, and yet Ahab is ignoring the hand of God. Now, he's got track record on this. You go back to chapter 16. It's not the first time that Ahab has ignored the hand of God. We've got this fascinating verse at the end of chapter 16 regarding Jericho in the warnings that came in the times of Joshua. In his days did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and set the gates thereof in his youngest son Segev, according to the word of the Lord, which is spake by Joshua the son of Nun. Judgment and the warning of God was ignored by Ahab in the past. No big surprise, he ignores it now in the present. He's got track record on this. You see, the human heart will not change simply by circumstance. Just by events, the human heart is not brought to God. Ahab's heart is unchanged here. How do we know that? Well, I've mentioned this several times. Verse number five, we see his behavior as a king. He sends Obadiah and goes himself to the fountains and the waters to try to find some grass to save the horses and the mules alive. His eyes are not upon the Lord. He he remains fixated upon the material and the physical. Our brother this morning made it clear. It is the cross that sets men free from the power of this world. And so those who are not converted, they still are worldly in their thinking. And so it is for Ahab here. Now I think the significance of this is is not that he simply is an animal lover. He's not involved in some sort of animal loving group. What's involved here is his concern for the military might of the nation. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God, Psalm 20, verse 7. He is one who's trusting in horses and mules and chariots. And his concern is, we're going to lose all the beasts, therefore our military might is going to be greatly diminished, and we're in huge trouble with the nations around us. God is not in his thoughts. You see, turn back quickly to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26, you see, in the giving of the law here, there's instruction regarding the people of God. Verse 1 of chapter 26, Ye shall make no idols nor graven image, nor rear you up a standing image. Verse 2, you shall keep my Sabbath. Verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, Then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield their increase, 
and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. There's a promise here, a covenant promise of God, that he will give rain and plenty to those in the nation as they walk in God's ways. But then over in chapter 16 of Leviticus, in verse number 20, it says this, Your strength shall be spent in vain. Here's again the words of warning regarding when they slip into apostasy. Strength spent in vain, for your land shall not yield or increase. And that is, shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Ahab is living in such days. And yet still, he's determined to turn his face away from God. He is like so many who rule the nations of this world. Trouble comes, trials occur, and what's the solution? Try to fix it. Try to find solutions rather than seeking the face of God and repenting of sin. That's the modern politician who lives in the pathway of all politicians in previous years. His behavior is king. Note also his blame shifting. Verse 17, he sees Elijah and says, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? You see, we're we're seeing the unaffected heart of Ahab. He's slanderous and scornful regarding Elijah. You're the cause of the trouble. And isn't always the case that the rights are blamed for the trouble. You think of the book of Acts and Philippi. And they bring the magistrates and they say, These men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. Or Acts 17 in Thessalonica. They found them not. They drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. The righteous blamed. Why? Well, because there is the kingdom of Christ and there is the kingdom of the evil one. And when the kingdom of the evil one is brought under siege, they're going to put their ire towards those of the kingdom of Christ Jesus. Tacitus, the Roman historian, refers to the burning of Rome and says this, as a consequence, to get rid of the report, that is the report that Nero was guilty of this, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians. That's why 1 Peter Peter encourages the believer to suffer righteousness for well-doing, not for evil-doing. You see... Dear child of God, when you're accused of being a troubler in Israel, take that as a compliment. It's meant slanderously, but it ought to be a compliment for the child of God. For when you stand for truth, you will always trouble the heart of the ungodly. The religious formalist, with their church attendance, once in a blue moon, Easter and Christmas and whatever else they may feel like it, they are troubled by the fact that you are zealous for the things of God and they resent you for it. The atheist, with all of their supposed knowledge, they are troubled by the fact that you have a peace that they know nothing of. Why do you have this joy in your soul when they cannot find joy in all their scientific advances? They're troubled by these things. The heathen are troubled in conscience. They see your marriage and the joy in your marriage, I trust. And they see their own miseries. And they feel the resentment of that. And you're troubling them. Now we are not. We're not to seek to find trouble. We're to seek to pursue peace. Follow peace with all men. Hebrews chapter 12. As much as possible. Romans chapter 12. Live peaceably with all men. But it's not always possible. 
And when you stand for truth that may well lead to trouble, one man says this, there is no higher testimony to the consistency of our life than the healthy hatred of the Ahabs around us. That's a good testimony. You see, the behavior of Ahab and his blame-shifting show us again a heart that's unchanged, not right with God. Trials, afflictions, trials are teaching tools in the hand of God. They are. For the child of God, we, we see our sinfulness in the midst of trials. We, we come to experience God's grace. We're, we're moved to communion and dependence upon God. We, we, we learn in our trials, but trials are only teachable, are only teaching tools to the teachable. And the heart of the ungodly, they are not teachable. And we must not presume that afflictions will lead people to the ways of God. And yet at times we do that. I'm old enough now to see different times of financial ruin. And I've been in prayer meetings during those times as the finance have collapsed in a nation. And the prayers would often go up, perhaps, Lord, they will now turn to you. And that's a good sentiment. We, we, we see that there's a, a necessity. We, we, we lose our worldly possessions. Surely now we'll put our face towards God. And God can do that. But we shouldn't presume upon it. And often the case is that when trials come and afflictions come upon the ungodly, they are hardened in their resentment against God and they are not softened towards the Lord. The Lord I can borrow the words of him, must sanctify to us our deepest distress. And so as we pray for lost souls this afternoon, and we think about the afflictions they may go through, make sure that we do not presume that afflictions will lead them to God without their hearts being changed by the power of God. Simply going through difficult times will not cause people to turn to God. It is the gospel that changes the hearts of the sinner. And so Ahab's heart is certainly unaffected. His guilt is also unmistakable. Verse 18. Elijah says to him, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house. Now here we must note the forthrightness of the man of God. Elijah's forthrightness is not natural. There is a responsibility for the man of God to rebuke and expose sin. You think of Nathan and David, thou art the man. And I just want to pause here for a moment or two and remind you of our need in every generation for gospel ministers to have a humble boldness. There is a necessity for men of God to have this humble boldness. But what is it that causes such boldness? It's not natural. You know, yes, there are those who would fight with their shadows. There are those who are pugnacious in their personalities. There are those who would, uh, again, are argumentative by nature. That's not the boldness here of Elijah. He's going to the king. His life is in the hands of the king. And yet he is not fearful to say, you're the cause of the trouble. Your sin is the cause. Well, what must be true for the man of God? I think of our brother here with us today. I think of the students in our ministry. I think of the need for men to be called into the ministry. We need people who are men of God, walking with God, with the word of God. Those three things, men of God, walking with God, 
holding the word of God. All three are necessary for there to be sanctified boldness when it comes to rebuking sin. Men of God, they know their commission. Elijah is aware that he's called of God. He's he's conscious of the divine will in his life. And we must have young men who can stand before the pulpit and say, I'm called of God to this office. It's vital. If they stand behind the sacred desk and they are not convinced of God's call, they will shrink back when it comes to naming sin and calling out sin in the congregation. But they must also be men not only who have this commission, but also walk in communion with God. Who know that God is real. Who fear God and therefore do not fear man. Listen to a message yesterday regarding the ministry and widespread apostasy in the Christian ministry. It was a Southern Baptist message and they were commenting upon their own denomination, how many ministers fall into sin. And the cause that was reported in many of the surveys is that these men began after a season to turn away from the word of God for personal encouragement. They stopped praying and they stopped reading their Bibles privately for their own benefit. Do you think it's possible for ministers in our denomination to stop reading their Bible for themselves and stop praying privately for themselves? It is absolutely possible. And when that happens, they will stop fearing God and they will fear man and the ministry will fall into disregard. Communion with God. But also, men of God, walking with God, with the word of God, they have confidence. The devil delighted in pursuing his attack against the inerrancy of the word of God. The liberal movement back in the late part of the 1800s and the 900s, this idea that God's word was contained in the Bible, but it's not all the word of God, that that so undermines boldness in the pulpit. Where the men of God are standing with the Bible going, I think this might be God's word to you today, but they're not certain of that. That is tragic. You see, you have these things together. Men of God, in communion with God, who have confidence in the word of God. Then they say, you're the troubler. And they call out sin in the nation. And they call out sin in the church. And they're prepared to deal with those problems in their pulpits. We must pray for this. And that's why I say it tonight. Yeah, it affects me. Of course it does. But we're met here to pray this afternoon. And to pray for these things. That God preserve our ministers and raise up men with such holy boldness. You see, his forthrightness is based upon the facts. Not the facts. What he says here, you have forsaken God. And you have gone to idols. That's the cause of trouble in the land. A forsaking of God. And a going to idols. It is the myth of secularism. It is a myth. That gives the idea that you can live as a human being without any need to address deity. We're told that, aren't we? Our children are told that in their schools. They're told that in the world and in public media. You can live without God in your mind and it will cause no problems. It is the forsaking of God that leads to trouble in the land. Now, leaving aside this very particular circumstance, we're looking at a very particular time when God has brought judgment upon Ahab's household. But think of it in the general. 
without seeing a direct act of God in bringing a famine and drought. There is a leaving aside of God, a turning away from God, a forsaking of God, a turning to idols. What happens? Such a turning away causes people to abandon God's will, to abandon God's commandments. And we believe with all of our hearts that God's commandments are good and for good. So even without there being direct divine judgment, when people turn away from God and forsake God's will, trouble will follow. Trouble will always follow when people reject the will of God. That's because God's will is good. And so we have to see this in our society. What has been the result of a neglect of Sabbath keeping? Has it been for the good of the nation? Has it promoted business and commerce? Or have people become so busy they're burnt out and depressed and discouraged? It's not for good. Think of the neglect of marriage. Has that been for our good? Of course not. The will of God is good. And Ahab is called out for his unmistakable guilt. But finally and thirdly and very briefly, Ahab's compliance is unavoidable. Look what it says here. Elijah says to Ahab, now therefore send. Verse 20, so Ahab sent. Don't miss this. He said, well, of course, of course he's going to obey the prophet of God. Of course nothing. This is Ahab, whose heart is so hardened, he's no thought of God in all of his ways. And Elijah comes to him, Elijah says, do this, and he does it. And we say, well, of course he does. No, this is remarkable. This is surprising. They've been chasing prophets, pursuing Elijah in every nation. Their determination to put him to death, he now appears And Ahab is like a timid servant in the face of Elijah. Wow. How can this be so? How can he obey so promptly and seemingly without any question? He doesn't say to Elijah, wait a minute, you're up to something, aren't you? You've got a plan and a scheme here. No. He just simply says, so Ahab sent. So Ahab sent. Two reasons. The heart of the king is in the hand of God. The heart of the king is in the hand of God. What an encouragement in days of national declension. God has not lost control of the heart of his kings. Pink says this. How few, how very few acknowledge the hand of God in the present conflict of the nations. And let it be affirmed that the Lord is dealing with us in judgment for our sins. And even the majority of professed Christians are angered by such a declaration. he's, He's writing in the context of the world wars. The nations are in turmoil. And he's saying there are very few who acknowledge the hand of God. And Christians are angry at such a thought that God's hand is at work. But he continues. But read through the scriptures and observe how frequently it is there said the Lord stirred up the spirit of a certain king to do this. Or moved him to do that. Or withheld him from doing the other. In the light of the scriptures. What believing heart will doubt for a moment that it was the Lord who made Ahab willing in the day of his power 
willing to obey the one whom he hated above all others. It is God who worked in Ahab's heart. But there's more to it than that. Well, no less than that, but more in the sense that his heart is moved in the face of the power of the man of God preaching the word of God. I think that's also part of this. I've said to you already, and I took the time to detail the forthrightness of Elijah. But what is he coming with? He is coming with the word of God in the power of the Holy Ghost. Well, clearly, I'm going to take that in a New Testament direction. I'm not suggesting here that Ahab is converted in any sense. I'm just saying that the power of God works through the preaching of the word of God and hearts are moved. But do we not see that coming to fullness in the New Testament? That when men of God preach the word of God to hardened hearts, those hearts are softened and they come to believe the truth. Oh, I wish the churches would realize this power today. We all see the declension around us. We see the churches and the numbers that are falling. And we see liberal churches building up. People having their ears tickled from place to place. And we wonder to yourself, well, what can we do to turn this around? Perhaps we can find some new fine programs or schemes. It is the Spirit of God anointing the preaching of the faithful Word of God. That is what God uses to change the hearts of men. So, so simple. It's always been the way. And for some reason, the Church of Christ, we have to be told it time after time after time. We're so tempted to say, what can I come up with to fix the problem? Dear child of God, I encourage you, please pray for God's power upon the preaching of the word of God. That hearts be changed and obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ahab is this picture for us today. He shows us what it's like to live in days of declension when men's hearts are hardened. But surely it gives us hope. Hope in the power of God and the sovereignty of God who is over all of these things. And in our day, does all things for the glory of Christ's name.